Welcome to Israel and You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Our host is Aaron David Free, President of Israel Team Advocates International. Aaron is an author, speaker, Bible teacher, and an advocate for Israel and the Jewish people on college campuses nationwide. This is Israel and You. Hey, welcome to Israel and You. Uh, this is Aaron David Free, your host, your friend. And in our last podcast, I shared with you the principle of deliverance and enlargement from the book of Esther and the Jewish Feast of Purim. We just celebrated the Feast of Purim a few weeks ago, and I think this talk is really going to turn into a four-part podcast series on this wonderful principle from the book of Esther, the Feast of Purim, deliverance and enlargement, which I think is the the theme of the feast in, in the entire book of Esther. And I said that it's not only God's desire to deliver you through a long, painful season, but to also enlarge you and expand your borders of influence through your trial. I said in our last podcast that deliverance and enlargement go hand in hand uh, much the same way as restoration and restitution go together. Second Kings 8 tells the story of the Shunammite woman and the famine. Because of the famine, the woman left her land for seven years. When she returned home, she found that others had taken over her farmland. When the king heard her story, he ordered her land to be restored to her. That's restoration. But the king went one step further and proclaimed that, All of the proceeds from the produce grown in her fields since the day she had left seven years prior would be paid in full to her. That's restitution. So in restoration, God brings back the things that were lost in your valley of pain. In restitution, God gives you extra for all your pain and suffering. Deliverance and enlargement work the same way. As you move through a season of loss and difficulty filled with peril, your faith in God's mercy and love for you increases. I love what David said when he found himself in the valley of the shadow of death. Here's what he said. I will fear no evil for you are with me. And to me, that's one of the great truths in biblical literature. Those four little words, you are with me. David could face the uncertainty of the valley of death because he knew he was not alone. Someone once said, visions are caught, not taught. This was true for David. It was in the valley of the shadow of death, a place of scarcity and turmoil and pain. He learned for certain he was not alone. See, he, he learned something. He caught a vision in that valley of the shadow of death. The greater our trials, the greater things we learn. The deeper our valley, the deeper our faith. I love what David says in Psalm twenty-seven, thirteen. I would have lost heart had I not believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David knew two things. First of all, God was going to deliver him from the valley of death and bring him back to the land of the living. Secondly, he knew his understanding of the goodness of God was going to be enlarged and expanded through his trial. So we see this in the life of David. Uh, in, In the beginning of his life, he was a shepherd boy whose influence extends to a few sheep in the hill country of Bethlehem. David faces a lion and a bear in hand-to-hand combat. From the lion and the bear, his influence grows, and he faces a giant of a man. 
Here is how David responds to King Saul's questions about how on earth he believed he could defeat Goliath. David's simple response is this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine as well. What's he talking about? This God's program of deliverance and enlargement. In David's lifetime, is delivered from a lion, a bear, a giant warrior, a jealous king, and a son who betrays him. Each deliverance brings greater influence and enlargement. He becomes king over all of Israel and ultimately influences all human history for the Messiah would reign from the throne of David. Does David understand God's deliverance and enlargement program? Yes. Here's what he says. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have enlarged me when I was in distress. That's in uh, Psalm Verse uh, one of chapter four. So, in the same way, we can we can trust God for His deliverance and enlargement. Several years ago, <clears throat> I walked through a difficult season with a friend of mine who had suffered the loss of his business and the loss of his health. At lunch one day, we were talking about the scripture from Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purposes. My friend asked me a question, Aaron, what's your definition of good? I said, well, when I come through a long season of loss and suffering, then God will restore all my losses, all the lights will be green, I'll find an open parking space at Walmart, and I'll get all my stuff back. That's the definition of good, I said. He said, man, that is the weakest definition of good I've ever heard. I said, all right, smart guy, what's your definition of good? He said, when God delivers me from this season of pain, the thing I'm hoping for the most is that I will grow closer to God. In other words, my friend was trusting in God's deliverance and enlargement, and he realized the great truth that the greatest expansion and enlargement in our lives is not measured by things, it's not measured by stuff, but by the increase of our faith in God through the midst of our trial. It was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote in the Gulag of Archipelago. He was a man that was a, uh, a Russian dissident that was thrown into a Siberian prison where he rotted away year after year after year. He had a strong faith uh, in the Lord. <clears throat> and here's what he said. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. I nourished my soul there, and I say without hesitation, bless you prison for having been in my life. It's an incredible statement. Bless you prison for having been in my life. So what is he saying is the greater my test, the greater those prison experiences, the greater the, the valleys, the deeper the valleys of the shadows of death, the greater in my, my trust in God grows, the greater my trust, the greater of my expansion and enlargement. 
I've spoken with many people who are in different stages of loss. Some are dealing with financial loss. Others have lost dreams. Some have seen businesses they built over a lifetime collapse. Others are dealing with the loss of a loved one through death. Some parents are facing the loss of children through suicide. Each person has one thing in common, a theme that unites them. They all confess that in the midst of their greatest losses, they have never felt more alive or closer to God. Like an unexpected sharp and jabbing pain that blows every substation in our central nervous system with the speed of a lightning bolt, loss has a way of letting us know that we're still human, that we're very much alive. When you think about it, many of the notable defining moments of your life occur in times of pain. I can say that to be true. C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I find it compelling how hard it is to forget what pains we had in a time of loss, yet how much harder still it is to remember what joys we had in a time of gain. The discomfort we endure in loss forms those costly pearls in our character. We have no victory crowns to show for those blissful moments of life. Gain gets all the good press, but in the end, it's your loss you hold dear since it has become your, your best teacher. So we see this whole principle in the book of Esther. The Jews are facing total annihilation, yet Mordecai had such a profound faith in God through his previous life trials and tribulations that he could in this moment of desperation not only believe in God's deliverance, but also in God's enlargement. And today you might be facing some serious setbacks in your life. Maybe a season of loss has you feeling like you've been sidetracked or even set on the shelf. Maybe you have lost hope in the midst of this pandemic. Maybe you are in a place you can't believe in God's deliverance, let alone his desire to expand you on the other side of this trial. Maybe fatalism has filled your soul. Uh, in a future podcast and, and program, I, I want to talk about the Persians uh, in the book of Esther. They were fatalists. They cast lots, which were broken pieces of pottery. Uh, a lot, or the word lottery that we use today, comes from the Hebrew word pur, and that's where you get the Feast of Purim. In fact, they named this feast after the thing that was set against them because uh, Haman went to a, a pagan temple and <clears throat> he cast lots uh, towards the day that he would annihilate all the Jews because the Persians believed in the fatalistic belief in a predetermined fate. You've heard the, the saying, well, that's just my lot in life. And that's where it comes from, from a spirit of fatalism. The Jews were not fatalistic. They believed in a sovereign God. The scripture says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so in the book of Esther, there's this clash of cultures. It's a culture that believes in a sovereign God who can deliver and enlarge a person through its trial. It's clashing with a fatalistic culture. And maybe fatalism 
has crept into your life. Maybe you're saying things like, well, that's just my lot in life. You know, my, my fate has been predetermined. There's no way out of this situation for me. So if that's you, I, I want to ask you three questions. And here they are. Can visions die? You know, when you have a vision in life and maybe for a business or, you know, some goals and dreams, you know, can those visions die? Second question, can I accept my losses? And the third question, what have I learned because of my losses? So here's the first questions. Can a, a, a vision die? Can a God-given vision die? We struggle with this question because when our vision was launched, we made decisions and sacrifices, invested time and money, and took extreme care to see the vision through to completion. We did our best. We thought that through the possibilities of failure as best we could, we believed God was leading us, but now the vision is dormant or dying, and we're suffering because we don't know what's happening. The humiliation of it all stings because we've made promises we cannot keep. Not only is our dream dying, but our reputation and our integrity are being buried in the sands of loss as well. Can visions die? In history, whomever God called suffered the death of the very vision God gave them. Abraham received the promised vision that he would be a great nation. 25 years later, God required he take his promised son to be sacrificed on an altar. We know from the story that God provided a lamb to replace Isaac. Even though Abraham believed God would raise Isaac from the dead, should he die on that mound of stone, still tears must have been running down the old man's beard as he raised the knife on the... Uh, in the air towards his beloved boy's heart. Consider Joseph, who dreamed of being a great leader and soon afterward was cast into a pit, but from there was pushed into deeper indentured slavery and was finally thrown even further down into a prison dungeon. More than 17 years of agony would pass before his life vision was resurrected from the abyss of despair. The psalmist picks up the reason for the death of a vision when he writes of Joseph's agony. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Moses was given a vision from God to free the Israelites from 400 years under Egyptian bondage. Almost as soon as it was born, that vision died, and Moses would spend the next 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. So maybe a vision has died. Can they die? Yes, they can. And we'll tackle those two questions as we come back on the other side with Israel and you. See you on the other side. Hi, this is Aaron Free. I'm asking you today for your partnership in standing with Israel team as we turn the tide of the growing discontentment and contempt towards Israel on evangelical college campuses. The exponential rise of anti-Israelism within evangelicalism is breathtaking. One prominent evangelical megachurch pastor recently proclaimed in a sermon series to his young congregation that we need to unplug from the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. We also He also proclaimed that Christians need to distance themselves from any Jewish values taught 
taught in the Bible. This notion comes from a theological perspective known as replacement theology, supersessionism, triumphalism. It teaches that the church has replaced Israel, superseded Israel, and triumphed over Israel, and that ultimately God has no further use for the Jewish people or the land of Israel. This theology is now spreading like a cancer through evangelical colleges. If nothing is done to push back against this growing trend, evangelicalism will be anti-Israel within 10 years. Your tax-deductible gift to Israel team advocates will help us communicate God's love for Israel and the Jewish people on college campuses. Beginning now through the month of March, Israel team is offering a two-book set for your tax-deductible gift of $50 or more. The first book, The Casualty of Contempt, The Alarming Rise of Anti-Semitism and What Can Be Done to Stop It. There's 16 authors, including Jay Sekulow, the chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. The second book, Two-Minute Warning, Why It's Time to Honor Jewish People Before the Clock Runs Out, is a book I co-wrote with Coach Bill McCartney from Promise Keepers. This book talks about the roots of replacement theology within Christianity. When good people like you become more aware of these growing trends and stand in unison together, the cancer of contempt towards our Jewish friends might well be reversed. Go to IsraelTeam.org to the donate section and we'll send this two book set out to you for a donation of $50 or more. That's IsraelTeam.org. This is Israel in You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Hey, welcome back to Israel in You. We're answering three questions as we talk about uh, the loss of uh, things in our life. Can visions die? Can I accept my loss? And what have I learned because of my loss? And so we're on that first question, can visions die? Why does God allow life visions he gives us to temporarily die? He is testing us in the setbacks and losses of life in order to prepare us to shepherd the immense dream he has birthed within us. If you are suffering the death pangs of a God-given vision, a designated day of redemption is in your future. Just as for the Jews in the book of Esther, uh, as Mordecai uh, believed, he said, God's not only going to deliver us, he's also going to enlarge us. That's in Esther 4.14, which I believe is the theme, the book of Esther. When a vision is dormant or dead, the enemy of your soul tries to convince you that you were never meant to live that dream. God allows a vision to die so that you will trust in his abilities. It takes faith to see a life vision birth. It takes even greater faith to let the vision go, believing God will restore it in his time. To answer the question, can visions die? God's word says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much uh, grain, much fruit. One way or the other, God is going to refine you. God is concerned about what happens to you, but he is more intimately and deeply concerned of what happens in you. Can visions die? Yes, they can. Second question, can I accept my losses? It's a very difficult question to ask. As you face loss, perhaps in this pandemic, question is, can you accept it? Job asked this question in his epic book about suffering loss. Here's what he said. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? It's in Job 2.12. Job was asking the question, can I, can I face loss and accept it. He says, yes, if I can accept the good things of 
God, can I not accept uh, losses and accept adversity in my life? Job saw his loss as an act of a sovereign God who brings to each of us both triumph and adversity, pain and pleasure. Can you face your loss and see the hand of God in it? Can you accept loss? After David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, David was confronted by Nathan the prophet and repented of his sin. Bathsheba became pregnant and gave birth to a son. The child became ill and David fasted and prayed for seven days for the life of the boy. On the seventh day, the child died. And David's reaction is an extraordinary example of how one can accept loss no matter how painful. Then one of the, on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not hear our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? How uh, it may do him some harm, they said. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And here's what David said. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I, being, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This is in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 8 through 23. Think of it. David committed adultery and orchestrated the death of Bathsheba's husband. His sin, his sin of adultery and murder had placed his entire family in peril. Often the consequences of such sin are suffering and loss. We should always examine our hearts and repent as David did if we have departed from God's commandments. After repentance and cleansing, it's also vitally important that we don't allow shame to enter our hearts. People tend to hold on to the baggage of their past sins. David didn't. He accepted the fact his tragic loss was due to his own sin, got up from the ground, and went to the tabernacle to worship God. He decided not to live in shame and declared that living in remorse over his loss was not going to bring the child back. David decided to go on living. Of course, not every loss is a result of sin, but even so, people tend to hold on to the pain of their losses, thinking that somehow their self-condemnation will change their circumstances. One of my favorite passages of Scripture about the need to bounce back after suffering loss is in Second Chronicles. Young king of Judah, Amaziah, was going to war against the Edomites. To prepare for battle, he hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel to the tune of 100 talents of silver, about $1.6 million in today's dollars. A man of God came to the king and told him that hiring these soldiers was a very, very bad idea. But Amaziah had already paid the soldiers a lot of money 
and was having a hard time accepting that he would lose and that he should dismiss them from the battle. Amaziah asked the man of God a direct question about incurring loss, and the answer has helped me on numerous occasions to accept my losses and place my faith in a God who is ever willing to restore my deficits and give me full restitution to not only deliver me, but enlarge me. Uh, Here's what the scripture says. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Second Chronicles 25, nine. And can you say that today as you face your losses? Can you accept it? Can I accept my losses and say, you know, even through it, God is able to deliver me from this valley of pain, but also to enlarge me and to give me much more than I've ever had before. And remember, it's not just things that we're looking for in God's expansion and enlargement program. The the ultimate gift that God gives us through our trials is a deeper understanding of his love for us, his mercy for us, and our understanding of who he is and what he has called us to be and do. One of the great tragedies in modern day Christians is that we are losing our ability to come back, to summon the sheer determination to come back from defeat. Yes, we may suffer some setbacks, but we should never be defeated. If we lose faith in the fact that God's love is perfect, his wisdom is infallible, and neither can be improved upon, we will never be able to accept our losses. We'll ultimately doubt that what is happening to us in this season of loss is somehow all part of God's sovereign plan. When our faith is low, a high level of fear fills the void. Next, shame slithers into our thoughts and leaves in its wake confusion, humiliation, self-hatred, self-loathing, and unending questions such as, why did I make that decision? They invade our consciousness, those types of questions. We see ourselves as the proverbial village idiot and believe that others view us as the same or even worse. Here's a piece of information you may not have considered. There are many people in this world who have suffered great losses as well. When you initially suffer loss, a time of reflection is healthy, but endlessly second-guessing your past decisions will cloud your present decisiveness. If you see all of life's losses as negatives, if loss is unacceptable to you, you won't learn such uh, great truths from it. Loss affects each of us uh, differently. The question is, can you accept it as a part of life? And can you come back trusting in God's desire to deliver you from this season of loss? And then in the end, in larger borders and expand your horizons. So the first two questions, can visions die? And the second question, can I accept loss? Here's the third question. What have I learned? What am I learning through this season of loss and pain. What is all of this adversity teaching me? I don't necessarily believe God allows loss in order to change us as much as to unveil us. When we stumble, we find out where we really stand. I have learned a few things from my losses. First of all, loss is temporary. You're going to get through this season. The old adage, this too shall pass, is not just a frivolous uh, belief and statement. Secondly, loss is necessary. 
Ecclesiastic makes this clear. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to gain and a time to lose. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 and verse 6. So through this season, what are you learning? And I pray today that God is teaching you some incredible things, that you're growing closer to Him through this season. We'll see you next time at Israel and You.